Welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are covering Sandman. Big, big issue. Number 60 anniversary issue. I thought we were out of comic books. We covered three. We covered the big three issues. Now we're done. <laughs> oh, yeah. We covered some Sandman. We covered some Hellblazer. <laughs> and we covered some Preacher. Yeah, Sandman number 60 coming in the middle of the... <laughs> Kindly one story arc, which is going to go on for a little while. Get some popcorn. But yeah, we're covering Sandman number <clears throat> 60 and 61, which is The Kindly Ones, part 4 and 5. Now, before we jump in to Sandman issue 60 here, I do want to backtrack a little bit because we got a comment on our blog, comment on our website, from Duncan Eagleson. Oh, this is, yeah, this is definitely worth mentioning. Now, Duncan Eagleson, as you may recall, drew Sandman number 38, I think? Yeah, that's right. Sandman 38. The, the Hunt. Hunt. Which is part of Convergence. Uh, yeah, from the Convergence. Which is part of Fables and Reflections, I think. So he left uh, a comment on our website, and I wanted to uh, take this opportunity to kind of air his comments. Here's what he said. Late to the party by a year or so, I just stumbled across this podcast. Glad you seem to like my contribution to the hunt. However, I didn't just descend from the sky to do this one issue, although I didn't do any more work on Sandman. I went on from there to pencil an issue of Shade the Changing Man and do the full-painted GNs of Anne Rice's The Witching Hour and Joan of Light and Dark. I haven't done much in comics since, but have been mainly doing book cover and game work. He leaves a link to his DeviantArt gallery, which we will put up in a more prominent position in the show notes, Mm -hmm. and also his portfolio website. Duncan goes on to say, To address a couple of issues you brought up, I don't know what the deal was with the bluish face shadow that scared the old woman. That was the colorist's decision. There was a panel in the comic book where the main character, who we'll eventually find out is a werewolf, has an odd look on his face that frightens an old woman. Right. Yes, he ate the innkeeper. I was going to say that the female werewolf, Grandma, was indeed intended to have leggings, but the colorist made them flesh-colored so it looks like she's bare-legged. But looking back at the art again, it's pretty clear her arms and legs were indeed bare. Guess I figured werewolves were too tough to be bothered by burrs and thorns, even in human form. Solid. Okay. In the first version of the pencils, it was clear that Vasily and the girl were having sex. Though no naughty bits were showing, Vertigo thought it was too graphic, and we went through several versions before they settled on the one you see now. I didn't think it was ideal, but they were footing the bill. I guess that's referring to his final uh, romp with Grandma at the end of the comic book? I believe so, yeah. Okay. Because it would be a very different scene if he was talking about the girl that Vasily was looking for the whole time. Which, they, they do not have sex. She is better off as something desired from a distance, is his understanding. Yeah, that seems to be the moral of the story that that Grandpa tells. Duncan again. I don't know if that was actually the real heart of Koshe the Deathless or not. You'd have to ask Neil. (laughs) 
I'll add one bit of trivia no one seems to have picked up on. When Vasily follows the girl to the campsite where they meet Baba Yaga, there's a hint about the nature of the people. There's a panel where four of the people are looking at you. They asked him no questions. And three of them are based on actors who played werewolves in the movies. Oliver Reed, Curse of the Werewolf, Lon Chaney Jr., The Wolfman, and John Carradine, The Howling. Not sure after all these years who the fourth guy is, though I might have been thinking of Ron Perlman as Vincent in the Beauty and the Beast TV show. Thanks for the nice review. Best regards, Duncan. Uh, and thank you for your comments, Duncan. Yeah, that's much appreciated, and that adds some interesting notes to our discussion. Glad well, to hear from you. Yes, definitely. But for now, moving on to Sandman issue 60. Now, previously in Sandman, Loki and Puck kidnapped baby Daniel Hall and put him in a fire. Since Morpheus had previously mentioned he was going to steal that baby, Daniel's mother Lyda blamed Morpheus and declared she would have revenge. Meanwhile, Nuala's brother Cloricon made her come home to fairy, which she was none too pleased about, and Matthew is worried about what will happen to him if he dies again. Right. Creatively titled The Kindly Ones 4, it is written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Mark Hempel, inked by Disraeli, with colors by Daniel Vazo. The cover is by Dave McKeon. And what we have here is a bunch of praying women with keys floating overhead. These keys are obviously going to refer back to the key to hell, which was essential in the Season of Mist story arc. Oh, is that obvious? It's going to come up. Uh, yes, obviously I suppose... Obviously in retrospect, sorry. They do talk about the key to hell in this issue. As a matter of fact, I think that's very nearly the first thing that happens. So we open on a barefoot man with long blonde hair and a white suit, and he is standing outside the club Lux. Right, we saw Lux earlier in this story arc, and we have established that it is where Lucifer hangs out and spends his time. Yeah. And also he owns the place. And this is where Lyda went with that uh, creepy businessman Eric for sort of a job interview slash date, which ended up being how Daniel was kidnapped, although we've, we've seen nothing to indicate that Lucifer had any knowing hand in that. Right. He might just be a restaurateur at this point, for all we know. A restaurateur and pianist. And a raconteur. Is he a raconteur? No, he doesn't really talk about himself much. No, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't open up in that way. He's this... a really rude club pianist, I mean, if we're being honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's your prerogative if you own the club. Yeah, and I don't know what I expected from the devil. Right. Maybe you were expecting more of an affably evil kind of thing. Mm. So this is the angel Remiel, as we find out when Lucifer in his bathrobe greets him. Oh yes, Lucifer in his bathrobe. I want to point out a couple of things here as he comes into the club. He says, I wish I could be certain that I was doing the right thing, to no one in particular. And when he enters the club, he is greeted by the half-masked silent waitress who we met before. She is currently scrubbing the floor. I'm wondering if she's the only employee here. Yeah, and does Lucifer not provide her with a mop? Apparently not. But, you know, it's still probably a step up from employment in hell. Yeah, I suppose. So he asks to see the owner. She says nothing because she never says anything. Yeah, I wonder if the waitresses who work at this club are rendered physically unable to speak. Or if it's just a condition of their employment that they never do. Oh, see, it's my understanding that this particular waitress is a specific individual and has a specific reason for being both half-masked and mute. Oh, okay. Is that something we're going to find out later? Sure. Well, all right. So Remiel meets Lucifer, and Lucifer has got furrows in his brow shaped like little horns, which is a cute detail. Yeah, his hair is also kind of sticking up in that way. 
Now, the last time we saw Remiel was at the end of Season of Mists, and he is one of the two angels placed in charge of Hell. Yes, he, in tandem with Duma, are now ruling in Hell. According to the wishes of the Creator, I think, is what Lucifer always calls him. Yeah, no, they have an awkward chat here. Lucifer wonders who presides over those who rise, which I guess was Remiel's old job. Which, you know, that's the category that he falls into, having risen up against God. Okay. And he asks with palpable enjoyment whether Dumas' silence is driving Remiel crazy. Remiel says, The flames of hell must be seen as refining fires, in my opinion. And Lucifer snarks, Of course they must. What an exciting and innovative opinion yours must be. What a sweet idea. Yeah, and he goes on to taunt Remiel that they're certainly not wishing Lucifer would come back so they can return to the Silver City, right? And hesitantly, Remiel asks, have you ever thought about returning? And Lucifer, who now in a power move is totally naked, changing clothes in front of Remiel, just bursts out laughing. And then darkly says, no. Yeah, not the answer he was hoping for. Remiel tells Lucifer to be honest, so Lucifer adds that he doesn't like or respect Remiel. Yeah, I like how he says honesty is a somewhat overrated virtue. (laughs) Because it would compel him to say mean things. Yeah, Remiel, he says, believed in the rebellion in heaven, but he didn't join out of fear. And Lucifer adds that it must have been Duma who actually took the key to hell, since he has some backbone. In response to this, Remiel goes ahead and spits on Lucifer's face. Lucifer informs him that merely by giving up the key to hell, he has not given up any of his powers and could erase Remiel from existence with no more consequences than wiping the spit from his face. I'm not sure why we should believe that, but Lucifer seems to say it with some conviction. I could do it. I choose not to. Go now. I will talk to you no further. And we see that the waitress is smiling. She's been paying attention to this conversation the whole time. Remiel gets back to hell, where he tells Duma that it went badly. And if you want to deal with him, you can damn well talk to him. He also says we didn't even begin to talk about the whole Dream King situation. So, there's some kind of situation involving the Dream King. Indeed. Now we come to our title page, and Lyta Hall is walking, and this splash page kind of gives us the nature of the voyage that she's on, which is to say that she is simultaneously in a sort of gritty city scene, and also in a fantastical desert landscape. Yeah, the page is split down the middle by Lyta's figure between the brightly colored desert and the gray city scene, indicating that she's she's either kind of hallucinating a different nature to her voyage than what it actually has, or she's, you know, encountering magical things that have significance beyond their mundane appearance. Yeah, this is going to continue to be an ambiguity for the next few issues as she has this journey that's going on, and it's not entirely clear to us whether it's her journey is entirely in her mind, or whether it's real, or perhaps both, as she seems to be physically in L.A., and yet the events that she's undergoing have meaning, have import. Right, so she comes upon an adventurer in a green tunic and brown cape, and she asks the way to revenge. Aha! Powerful long way, or so I'm told. Over that hill, perhaps. And why would you be seeking revenge, lady? My son is dead. Alas, and what manner of revenge would you be seeking? 
My mother was blessed by the three ladies with the scorpion whips, the Furies. Hush, you mustn't talk about them like that. Why not? Zounds! Because they don't like it, I suppose. Would you? I don't know. I don't think so. So, Lyda asks if the adventurer wants to come with her, but the adventurer says no. Yeah, he's got to rescue his true love, who happens to be a he, by the way. But he gives her a coin, and as he does so, we see Lyda sitting on the curb of an ordinary street, contemplating the coin she's been given, and there's a woman walking by her with a purse, maybe having just given her the coin? Indeed. So we kind of see what's happening in the real world, cut back and forth with what's happening, either in Lyda's mind or in this kind of mythological journey that she's going on. The next that she meets is a hideous female cyclops. Again, she says she's searching for the Furies, and again, she is warned that they wouldn't like it if they knew they'd been called that. Even the gods are scared of them, you know. They were around before the gods, you see. The old Revengers. You'll need to cross that forest and keep walking. Yeah, the Cyclops is also on a journey of her own. Everybody that she meets in this place is journeying for a purpose. And as her conversation with the Cyclops ends, we see that she seems to have been interacting with a crossing light. Yeah, a stray cat comes up, which Lyda perceives as a humanoid cat person with an eye patch. Yeah, I took this to be the goddess Bast that we've met before, who appears in this kind of form. Humanoid from the neck down. Cat head. Although but, I don't know where she lost the eye. Yeah, Bast doesn't have any reason to be missing an eye. Now Lyda thinks she can find the you-know-who's in her mother's land, in Greece. Yeah, she says she doesn't know what to call them, and... The cat says, the ladies, well, you could call them the nice ladies, or the kind ladies. They like that one. Yeah, so we're getting closer to a certain name. Lyda invites the cat to come with, but the cat says she's on her way to wager that a shape-changing ogre can't take three forms of her choosing. The third shape will be a mouse, of course, but they never learn. They can't. They're part of the story, just as I am. But So as Lyda continues on, we cut away to Rose Walker having sex. Yeah, the presence of the dollhouse on a nearby table tells us that this is Rose Walker's bedroom. Yeah, I thought that was cool. A reminder that that's where we last saw her. The dollhouse physically exists, but it's also a callback to that story by that title. And Rose mostly has red hair with one kind of colored streak in it, which is reminiscent enough that we're reminded of her old character design, although it isn't actually what her old character design was. Yeah. She um, was blonde, and then she dyed it red, or she was dyeing it blonde, and then she reverted to red. Either way, this reminds us that she's worn both colors. Now, it seems to be really good sex, but then she is distracted by the presence of Abel, spying from the top of the wardrobe. Yeah, he insists that he wasn't meaning to peep, but he has a bucket of popcorn. Eh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And the presence of Abel, of course, means that this is actually a dream. Yeah. Rose hopes that Abel's eyes fall out for peeping, and as she says this, we see a man in sunglasses in a poster on the wall. So there's a couple of simultaneous hints at the Corinthian. There's a knock on the door, and she wakes up, and it's Carla. And it's at this point that we find out that actually Rose Walker was the babysitter. Right, she is the Wozy who lives downstairs, who is Daniel's occasional babysitter. So, like, this is the second or third major coincidence kind of drawing Rose Walker into Morpheus's affairs. Yeah. Yeah, and Gaiman is bringing in a bunch of characters from all over the canon to try to 
tell a story that ties everything together and wraps everything up at once. Carla recaps that the reason she walked away from Lyda is that they had a fight, Lyda was acting crazy, and Carla felt like she owed herself a night of real sleep. Yeah. But at that point, Lyda took off, and Carla hasn't seen her since. Yeah, and she says in the morning she realized if it was her kid, she'd be acting crazy too, so she came on back. But Lyda's gone. Rose says that she feels Um, responsible for what happened to Daniel. Carla says it's not her fault. Rose says it's not her fault, it's her responsibility. There's a difference. And then by way of encouragement, Carla calls Rose kid, to which Rose snaps that she's 25, she just still looks 17. Some side effect of whatever happened to her in the doll's house, being the dream vortex in her adventures with Morpheus. It comes out that the police never came to ask Rose any questions. Carla calls them Friday and Gannon and says, whatever their names are, didn't they take a statement from you? They said they were going to, wanted to know all about you. Rose says, nobody's spoken to me. Carla says they wanted to know if you were doing any drugs. Rose replies, I fell asleep. That was all. I've never fallen asleep like that. Yeah, so it was weird. Yeah. Weird and sleep related. Yeah. Okay, as they're talking, Rose starts setting up her VCR. She's taping a lot of sitcoms for something that she's writing. She mentions that people have weird experiences, but they come out the other side. Sort of what she decided at the end of Doll's House, that she could ignore all the weirdness that had happened to her and go on to live her life. Yeah, this despite the fact that her best friend was one of the people killed in the diner by Dr. Destiny way back in the first story arc. And at that time, she seemed pretty determined to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. She also mentions that she's been spending her time lately caring for a dying friend whose situation is terminal. Yeah, that's definitely worth mentioning. Seeing sort of the state of Rose's day-to-day, Carla asks what it actually is that Rose does. She says she doesn't have a job, she doesn't need one. She inherited vast wealth from her grandma, Unity Kincaid. Carla mentions that she lives on a kind of trust fund, too. Her grandmother was a famous actress. Mm -hmm. Carla decides to call the detectives, who this time she's calling Abbott and Costello. She keeps calling them by these, like, archetypal names. But when she gets out their card, it's blank. Yes, quite the mystery there. Meanwhile, Lyda comes to what seems to be the House of the Furies. She walks in, and there are two women wearing veils inside. Yeah, this is an idyllic thatch-roofed cottage, and inside she finds what reminded me an awful lot of the spider women from the doll's house, right? Oh, sure. There's two women in these sort of bridal gowns with uh, long veils. Right. And here we can actually see a spider dangling in in one's headdress. So they introduce themselves as Stino and Uriele. They say that their sister died, which was inevitable because she was mortal, unlike them. Yeah, inevitable, but she didn't die of natural causes, exactly. I'm not sure if it's here, but we're going to find out that she was decapitated. He cut off her head. He was a stranger. We wanted to bury it with her, but he carried it off with him. There should be three of us. You could be the mortal one. So, is this someone we know who it is? Are we supposed to know who that is when we hear that somebody got their head cut off? Well, these are characters from Greek myth. Stino and Uriel are two of the Gorgons, which explains the veils. It also explains why there's statues of people all over their living room. Yeah, surprised-looking statues all over their house. So their faces would cause petrification, that's why they're hiding them. And their mortal sister was Medusa, who was killed by Perseus. Okay, 
So we're supposed to know it from Greek myth, not from the Sandman comic book. That's right. <laughs> okay. We know it if we've done the research. It's not something that's been established previously in this series. They invite her to stay, but they don't have any food because no mortals live there. Not the best hosting. Yeah, they send her out to get some apples from the garden. They mention that the garden belongs to some other mythological characters. Aegle, Erethea, and Arethusa. So I guess she's in, like, the general region of mythology where famous trios of women live. That, just that particular part of Greece, you know. Yeah. These three names, uh, Aegle, Erethea, and Arethusa, by the way, are the nymphs of the sunset known as the Hesperides. And as she reaches the tree, indeed, we can see a sunset in the background. These three are the daughters of Atlas. There are sometimes three, although there are sometimes four or seven of them. And it seems like these mythical female triumvirates live together or in similar places, but you never seem to run into them at the same time. Now, as she goes for an apple, Lyda is confronted by a three-headed snake. He warns that if she eats it, she will lose some of her mortality. Who? Who are you? Are you Satan? Not bloody likely. I'm a Gurian. You are? I'm Lyda. Hippolyta Hall. Hippolyta, also Antiope, queen of Amazons, given in marriage by Hercules to Theseus. Hall, a corridor, placed between places. Lighter, less dark, yes? I suppose. It's just a name. Are these the apples from the Bible? Gurion answers that these are not the apples from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are more like the other tree. Why did God expel them from the Garden of Eden? Because they disobeyed him, I suppose. Not a bit. Scared they would find the tree of life next and eat and live forever. Genesis 3.22. Take apples by all means. I'm Guardian. To be honest, don't give a toss who has them. No one ever comes here. Just rot on the ground, the worms get them. Pity. He goes on to give Lyda a piece of advice. Ladies who sent you down here. Yuri Ailey. Stino. Still miss the sister if you get my drift. Sleep in their house. Eat this food. Well, wouldn't recommend it. That's all. As Lyda takes a bite of the apple, we see that in the real world, she is leaning against a dumpster in an alley. The apple looks much less appetizing, and she is being watched by a lizard. Yep. In the dreaming, Morpheus makes his way down the grand staircase and finds the tiny skull of the unmade Corinthian. He now has two that he holds side by side. Yeah, we see him open up his keepsake chest, and as he reaches for the skull, we see also the bottle containing Azazel and the one containing Baghdad. So, it looks like that means that the Corinthian has been unmade at least twice in the past. But Morpheus seems to fuse the two remnant skulls into one. Storms are coming, he narrates as he looks out a palace window onto a beach. We follow his gaze down to where Merv Pumpkinhead is pulling a volcano on a red wagon across that beach. Yeah, Matthew shows up, and Merv introduces Matthew to another member of his staff named Abuda. Yeah, kind of a classic universal horror Frankenstein-looking guy. Now, Merv reveals that Nuala's gone home. Right, he's complaining that he's short-handed. Which is too bad, Matthew says, because with her gone, the castle feels like a boys' club. Lucian shows up, and he agrees. I particularly miss her little songs. You could hear them distantly all the way down the corridor. I rather enjoyed them. Quite a lot, in fact. Merv carries on for a little while about gender essentialism and archaic attitudes toward the relationships between men and women. Ooh, boy. <laughs> Dames! Who needs them? Yeah, that kind of sums the whole thing up. Yeah, he also says, Nope, they aren't like us. To which Matthew replies, Well, they aren't like you. 
<laughs> I also like how Matthew says, Merv, you say some amazingly dumb things sometimes. Yeah. Continuing to do so, Merv says that something is wrong with Morpheus. He can tell by the weather. Black storm clouds all the time, but no storms. What I want to know is what crawled up his butt and died. Now, Merv is continuing to kind of carry on complaining about Morpheus as Morpheus begins to materialize behind him, or kind of land behind him, I guess. He's been flying. I feel like they've done this bit a bunch of times and it never gets old. <laughs> uh, Merv? Merv! <laughs> and then Lucian's like, Mervin! You ask me, he's heading for big trouble. You gotta love him, sure, but the guy's a complete... A complete what, Mervin? Uh, just a complete, boss. Completeness is a virtue, Mervin, is it not? So Merv heads off to do some real work, and Matthew asks Morpheus not to be hard on him, which Morpheus wasn't really intending to. It has always been the prerogative of children and halfwits to point out that the Emperor has no clothes. But the halfwit remains a halfwit, and the Emperor remains an Emperor. I jotted that down too, that's a good line. Yeah, he sends Merv and Abuda on their way, but says that he needs Matthew and Lucian for a task. Now, Matthew actually asks about Mervyn's point about the weather. If nothing's wrong, why is the weather like this? And Dream kind of clarifies, This place is an aspect of part of me, Matthew, that is true. However, I am also to some extent an aspect of this place. That should not be forgotten. Yeah, so he's not exactly deliberately changing the dreaming, but he changes the dreaming constantly just by existing. It's part of him. Now, he shows Lucian and Matthew what he's been working on. Well, he's been creating the Corinthian. He puts the little remnant skull of the unmade Corinthian into the new Corinthian and commands it, Now, live. Thank you, my lord. It is good to live once more. I await your command. Says the Corinthian, looking mighty evil. Yeah, I noticed that when you look at this panel here of him before the skull has been placed, when he's basically a form without purpose. Uh, without consciousness, he basically looks young and innocent. And as soon as he's awakened, all three of his mouths are giving big toothy grins. Yeah. So you can't help but see this as a kind of foreboding moment. Mm-hmm. The Corinthian, who in his last iteration was a dreaded serial killer, is now alive again. Now that brings us to Sandman number 61. Same credits as last issue. On the cover, we have a woman with a long prehensile neck and a photo for a face, which is looking at a telescope. Now, where we left Lyda last issue, she had been warned about eating the Gorgon's food and sleeping in their house. So now she's doing those things. We open up on some more meta dialogue here as the Gorgons watch her sleep. It's happening very slowly, but it's happening. It always takes longer than you think, doesn't it? And what they are talking about is that she is slowly transforming into a Gorgon as she sleeps on their old-fashioned fainting couch. Look at her hair. She's very beautiful, Stino, isn't she? Do you think she's going to be our sister? We can pray. Lyda wakes up. They address her as sister. She points out that she's not. They say she can be if she likes. They offer her some water, but one of the snakes that is her hair comes down and drinks it. My hair! There are snakes in my hair! Only a few now, but there will be more the longer you stay here. Soon you'll be just like Medusa. Snakes. She was your sister? She was special. She's still in our hearts. I don't want to be like you two. Ah, but you could be so much worse. I don't need Gorgons. I need vengeance. Yeah, and when she says she's looking for the ladies to help her get her revenge, 
The Gorgons say, well, I don't know that that's such a good idea. You might find them. So I thought these were the ladies. Well, that's kind of what I was thinking about last issue, is that she keeps bumping into mythological trios of women who are not the Furies. And it's unclear if she's, like, just in the right region of mythology where she keeps running into them, or if it's actually a thing where they're all basically different understandings of the same set of beings, right? We never see them at the same time. It's unclear if this is just another aspect in their face of the kind ladies. Are the kind ladies also the Hecate? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I want to mention this line. Lyda very scarily says, He killed my husband. He killed my son. I will not stay. And I will have revenge. Can I have some more water, please? My hair drank most of it. Now we cut to Rose Walker walking through the city, and we see an excerpt from her journal. And she walks right past the homeless Lyda in an alley without noticing her. She's talking about the things they don't teach you in school. They don't teach you what to say to someone who's dying. They don't teach you anything worth knowing. She arrives at her destination, which is a hospice. She's here visiting her terminally ill friend. I've got a friend who's dying from AIDS. How does that make me feel? Empty, that's all. Just empty. And we see that this is Zelda, one of the two spider women who lived at the boarding house with Rose. Yeah, an old friend from the doll's house. Rose asks how she feels. The answer is terrible, and Rose kind of ignores the answer. Well, hang in there. Yeah, terrible and horny. Yeah. Zelda recalls the parable with the footsteps. Right. The guy's looking at his life as footsteps on a beach, and God's walking side by side with him, but then at the most difficult parts of his life, there's only one set of footprints, and he thinks that God abandoned him, but God said, no, that's when I was carrying you. It's a pretty well-known parable. Yeah. Whatever, Rosie. These days I just feel like God's dumped me down on the sand. And we gather from their conversation that Chantal has already died. Chantal didn't b believe in God. She loved spiders and skulls and graveyards for themselves. I loved them because they showed t t t transience. She asks Rose why she's smiling. I don't know, because you never used to speak, I suppose. Chantal did all the speaking for both of you. Because she stuttered, Zelda answers. Stuttering as she does. And Rose notes that she can't allow herself to finish Zelda's sentences. It makes her cry. I wish I was still b b beautiful, Rose. And I'm so horny. They don't tell you that in the literature. It's like my body knows it's dying and it's saying sex, sex, sex all the time to me. Like I've only got a few more weeks and it wants to make a b b baby or it wants to get close to someone. As she says this, Zelda lays a hand on Rose's hand. But Rose replies, We've been over this a dozen times, Zelda. I'm happy to come down and see you every day. I'm happy to pick up your bills. That's where it stops. And then Zelda says something inaudible. Yeah, and then she mentions that it is her 30th birthday next week. Although, as we've seen her here, she looks like a very old woman. Yeah, that's pretty bizarre. Okay. Yeah, she's about to be 30. She asks Rose why Rose is visiting her and picking up all her hospital bills. You hardly even knew me. Why? Because I can, I suppose. But Rose thinks to herself, It's a vigil. That's what it is. It's a vigil. In her narration, Rose reveals to us that Zelda's dying of AIDS. Though Rose doesn't know how she got it. She thinks how she likes flowers because she likes watching them die. A macabre parallel to her relationship with Zelda. 
She likes watching them blossom and watching them die. She likes playing God, in short. Now this is where Zelda points out that Rose doesn't look a day older than she did in Florida. Rose just brushes it off. Thanks. Did I fall asleep? I was told to give you a message. Oh yeah? Who's the message from? Your grandmother She said she had a message for you. She said it was important. My grandmother's dead, Zelda. I know. She said that. She said she was dead. You have to go back to where she lived. Where she used to sleep. She said you would know where she meant. She said if you go to her, she'll give you back your heart. Okay, so a lot going on there. But Rose has been given a a quest. Yeah, she's been given a mystical mission. And of course it makes sense that Zelda comes back from a dream with this message. Unity and Rose have both been tied to the dreaming. Right, perhaps we should recap at this moment that Unity fell victim to the sleepy sickness when Morpheus was imprisoned. Some people's sleep flew out of whack. And in her case, it manifested as being asleep constantly for 70 years. Right, now Unity, while unconscious, was raped by desire, and Rose's mother was the product of that, which means that Rose is, in fact, related to Morpheus and the rest of the Endless. Yeah, she's Dream's grandniece. We now cut to the Dreaming, and we are told that it's the Dreaming in Narration Box, which sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. It didn't last issue when we went to the Dreaming. Doesn't look like Topeka. The Corinthian asks for and is granted his name, He knows that he's not the first Corinthian. You are the second, says Morpheus, which, again, seems to be a lie. Because we've seen multiple Corinthian skulls, giving us the impression that there have been multiple Corinthians before this one. Right. The first was a disappointment, Morpheus said, so he unmade him. I would not wish to be a disappointment. Yeah, and as they look over the dreaming here, there's a kind of a landscape of weird, like, baby faces and hands. Oh, yeah, that's pretty creepy. The Corinthian mentions that he has vague memories of walking the earth, which Morpheus explains are left over from the fragment of the first Corinthian's essence Morpheus implanted in him. He also mistakenly thinks he knows the name of Morpheus's raven, Jessamy. Oh yeah, Jessamy was a previous raven. So we're getting a little callback on the fact that Matthew is not the first raven and will not be the raven forever, something he's rather concerned about. This is the raven Matthew. The raven Jessamy has not been with us for some time. He notices Matthew's beautiful eyes. You have beautiful eyes, Matthew. I was walking the waking world, teaching them things. Now the Corinthian will be many things in time, Morpheus says, but for now, he and Matthew are going to run an errand for the Dream King. You will accompany him, Matthew. Now Matthew hates this idea. But boss, I don't like him. I did not ask you to like him. I told you to accompany him. Why don't you like me? You kill people. You eat their eyeballs. Do you not eat eyeballs also, Master Raven? Do you not also feast on carrion? Corinthian is making the point that both he and Matthew do what's in their nature, and it's in both their nature to eat eyeballs. Yeah, they have this very specific thing in common. I want to point out, too, that that last Corinthian line comes from the mouths in his eyes, in fact, and the speech bubble has this weird frizzy border, sort of toothy border. Yeah. He reassures Matthew, somewhat non-reassuringly, that with me by your side, you'll be safe from all other harm. (laughs) Is that meant to be reassuring? Enough. Your errand is this. 
Find a certain child and bring him here. Right, so they are going to hunt down the missing Daniel. Meanwhile, in Fairy, Nuala is sort of being debriefed by Titania. Titania takes note of the new pendant that Nuala is wearing. Very pretty. That's new, isn't it? She asks how Morpheus was, whether he ever spoke of her. We can kind of get the sense that part of the information she wants from Nuala's stay in the dreaming is whether Morpheus is interested in her. Her Titania, I mean. And she's perhaps a little bit jealous that Nuala has a pretty bauble from Morpheus. She notes that Nuala's glamour, Nuala's not in her sort of true form, as we've become accustomed to seeing her, but her glamour isn't quite as glamorous as she used to be. Nuala replies that she seems as she feels comfortable seeming. That really is a lovely little bauble. If I were to ask you for it, what would you say? I would be forced to admit that it was a gift, milady, and not in my power to give. If, of course, you were to ask. This bores me. Farewell, says Titania, and as she gets on the horse, she asides to one of her servants. One had hoped that her time in the Dreaming might have taught her better manners. Yeah, so it sounds like Nuala was in the Dreaming mainly to overhear that Morpheus had a thing for Titania, and there doesn't seem to have been a backup plan in place for if he, you know, didn't. Or even just if he doesn't really talk about his affairs in front of Nuala, which it seems like he never did. Yeah, that's pretty much true. So after Titania leaves, Nuala is moping in her room until a little Boggart, who looks just like Puck except little, yeah, climbs in her window and starts reciting a rhyme. I dreamed of kittens who were born to neutered puss, then dreamed about a body buried in the corn. Be sure your sins will find you out. Away, foolish little Boggart. But I've three more verses and an envoy, and I must tell them only to you, lady. Enough, and away, I say. And he flies away. Nuala considers the bauble around her neck. So I could call you. I could always call. And if I did give in and call, what then? You'd bolt toward that bitch and kiss her hand and bow too deep and walk or minuet. How fitting that Lord Oberon is horned. But I can call you. I can always call. Even though Morpheus has never shown any interest in Titania, poor Nuala feels like she doesn't measure up. Like she'd be outshone if they were seen together. So elsewhere we find Lyda leaving the Gorgons. You know, there's a three-headed snake out in the garden. I don't think it trusts you two. It was rude about you. Well, then the next time we see it, we'll glare at it. They give her parting gifts, claws of brass, the nimbic glimmering, and life until death. They say, if you had stayed with us, we could have given you life until death. And Lyda says, don't I get that anyway? That's what we liked about you. You were so funny. And she seems to actually be smiling as she heads off on her way. Yeah, that's true. She's reassured for the journey. Now the plot thickens. We find Carla having a conversation with a policeman about Detectives Pinkerton and Fellows. Yeah, in a little sort of idyllic brick uh, police station. Carla mentions again that they never had the conversation they promised to have with the babysitter, Rose. And furthermore, that their business card is blank. Now, the cop says that he's never heard of Fellows and Pinkerton, but he doesn't seem too concerned. Yeah, even when Carla suggests taking fingerprints from the card, he's not really interested. It's a dead end. We'll make our own inquiries. Thanks for stopping by. And as Carla leaves the precinct, the nursery rhyme man is being brought in. Hey, Missy, your friend, the mean one. I seen her. She's got snakes in her hair. And she's not alone in her head anymore. Carla ignores him. She goes back home where on the floor she finds the crumpled photograph 
of the burned baby Daniel. And before her eyes, the burned image in the photograph turns back into a healthy child who mutters her name. Carla. Yeah, I mentioned that I wasn't sure if this was supposed to be a, a convincing photo of a burnt child or if it was just a photo with black scribbles on it, and it seems that the black scribbles fade away, revealing an unharmed Daniel. Um, I don't think it was ever supposed to be a photograph that somebody just scribbled on. I think it's a photograph of a burned child that the burned child turns into a healthy child before her eyes. Magic. A wizard did it. A wizard. <laughs> so, the picture continues to change in that it catches fire. Yeah, as Carla looks at it muttering, what the f- It catches fire and burns her hand. Rose walks in. I heard the noise up here. I thought maybe Lida was back. What's that smell? Roast me. I was holding this photograph and- Ow. So as Rose is treating the burn, Carla asks if Rose believes in magic. Not really, no. But that's not what you're asking me. It's not? Nope. What you're asking me is do I believe in weird shit? And the answer is yes. Of course I do. I'd have to be crazy not to. I've had a weird shit life. Carla wants to get together tomorrow to talk more about this stuff. But Rose says that she has to go to England. She just bought a ticket. She leaves tonight. That's right. I got this message that my grandmother needs to tell me something. Doesn't she believe in the telephone? Not anymore. She's been dead for four years. Like I said, weird shit. Now we cut to Lyda. She is staring at herself at her reflection in a shop window. And she's also standing in the forest with two other Lydas. Yeah, they tell her to reflect on how she got here. And as she does, she says that she's never made a decision for herself. Her destiny's always been decided by other people. She feels like she's been watching a girl in a mirror. But when Daniel died, the mirror broke. There were only two things I could have done, and one of them would have been just to lie down and never get up again. Yeah, and there's a kind of repeated, appropriately for the fact that she's talking to herself, mm -hmm. there's a repeated metaphor of a mirror here. Like she's watching her life go by in a mirror. One of the other Lydas replies to her, Right now you're just sorting everything out, through the looking glass, as it were, prior to doing something you can't possibly do. Not a hope, my dearie. Doomed to fail. Excuse me, but which one of us am I? Does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. Yeah, so given the choice between breaking and doing the impossible, she has decided to do the impossible. Now, we find Carla leaving Lyda's place when she runs into Detective Pinkerton. Yeah, he pulls a gun on her and orders her into the car so they can talk. You know, where I come from, we get six months of snow and ice, six months of mud and mosquitoes. In midwinter, the sun rises at noon, sets an hour or so later. There's never any certainty that the sun will ever come back. Someone could just stick a sharpened sprig of mistletoe through its heart and, well, game over. Winter darkness forever. Carla says he's not a cop and demands to know what's going on. And that's where he pulls the gun and orders her into the car. Mr. Pinkerton, uh, Luke, why don't you put the gun away? Because I'm not holding a gun. Aren't I sly? It was a cigarette all the time. And indeed we see he is now holding a cigarette. He goes on to say, There's a theory that for a human to be killed by a god is the best thing that could possibly happen to the human under discussion. It eliminates all questions of belief while manifestly placing a human life at the service of a higher power. Where do you stand on this theory? I... I don't believe in God. You don't have to believe in God, but what about gods, eh? The plurality of powers and dominions, the lords and ladies of field and thorn, of asphalt and sewer, gods of telephone and whore, gods of hospital and car crash. There is a madness needed to touch the gods, yes, this is true. Few mortals possess it. 
the willingness to step away from the protection of sanity to walk into the wild woods of madness. Mr. Pinkerton, whatever your name is, please stop this. You know what sticks people to something? The desire to know how it's all going to end. It's like glue. And do you know your tragedy, Carla? Uh-uh. It's that for all your goodwill, for all your willingness to help, you never knew what any of this was about. What was going on. You don't know how it ends, and you'll never get to find out. Stay there. You can't move, can you? No, I can't. Who are you? I am the mother to Odin's stallion Sleipnir. I am the father of Fenrir Sun-Eater, and of Hell Half-Rotted, and of Jormungand the World Serpent. I am Loki Scarlet, Loki Skywalker, Loki Giant's Child, Loki Lysmith. I am Loki who is fire and wit and hate. I am Loki, and I will be under obligation to no one. And as he says this, Carla catches fire in the car, and seemingly burns to death. Right, so Loki has put a stop to her investigation, and now we at last have sort of a motivation for him to be free of his debt to Morpheus. He will kill Morpheus, which is rather inhospitable. Now, he owes Morpheus a debt just for kind of accidentally helping him escape during the Season of Mist story. Yeah, if I remember correctly, Morpheus uncovered his escape and not only didn't report it to Odin, but Loki right. had tricked, uh, I think, Susanoo into taking his place. Yeah, in, that's who it was. Yeah, in the, the prison beneath the snake, and Morpheus freed him, but replaced him with a dream of Loki. The prison beneath the snake, where the snake is dripping venom on Loki for all eternity. Yeah. And Loki's wife has to catch it in a bowl, but whenever the bowl fills and she has to stop catching it for a second, it falls on Loki, and his trembling causes earthquakes and stuff. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so Pinkerton was Loki all along. Yeah, and there which was... means that the other guy was probably Puck, which makes the Detective Fellows make sense. Although I don't know that Loki being Pinkerton makes Detective Pinkerton make sense. Yeah, it seemed to me that he, because Pinkerton means detective, he just gave himself a name that was what he was. Right. It did kind of seem fishy all along, didn't it? Yeah. There was a little foreshadowing of this, too. When Lyda met the Furies in a dream, the Maiden said she'd already met those who took Daniel. Which led her to believe that it was Morpheus. Right. But in fact, it was Loki and Puck in the guise of the detectives. So yeah, this is a pretty dramatic moment to end on for the day. Although, there's still a lot to come, and we still don't have a full picture of what's going on. That's right. But this was a, a couple of issues that focused heavily on the human angle. You know, I don't think we saw Morpheus and the Dreaming until three-quarters of the way into issue 60. That's true. Yeah, and Lyda's journey, obviously, like, Lyda has been central to this whole story arc, but especially Lyda's journey has been big in these two issues. Yeah, but with Carla murdered by Loki and Rose heading to England, her support system in the mortal world has kind of completely eroded overnight. Yeah, that's true. What do you think about seeing Rose again? Yeah, that's a good twist that Rose is back. I'm always happy to see Rose. She's a good and interesting character, and it kind of has always seemed like there's more that's supposed to come out of her. Mm -hmm. So it's good that that promise might be finally paying off. Mm -hmm. What about Zelda? I can't say I was particularly dying to see Zelda again in the same way. She was sort of a forgettable character, and she kind of remains not that important here. Although we get some 
I don't know, we get some kind of... She provides an opportunity for some sort of musing on the nature of life and death. Yeah. I think it's funny that she's, like, her body knows it's dying, so she's horny all the time. That's, you know, an unexpected portrayal. Yeah. And it's pointed out in the dialogue how she was something of a deliberate non-entity in the doll's house. She didn't speak while Chantal was around. Sure. She was a very shy person, and she lived in Chantal's shadow, for better or for worse. The relationship between them has always been somewhat ambiguous. I feel like we get a slice of backstory here very subtly in their dreams, when all the dreams are spiraling together in the vortex. Sure, yeah. And there's a basic indication that Zelda was in a bad place, Chantal pulled her out of it, and then she kind of raised her and also became her lover. I see. And it's not... It's not really okay, but it's all that they have. So in a sense, the comic that we're seeing now is the first time that we're seeing Zelda in the absence of Chantal, and that's kind of a big deal for Zelda, too. Chantal has not just been a big part of her life, but a formative influence on her. Well, yeah, and what characterization we do get of Zelda in The Kindly Ones is kind of underlining that point, that, like, you know, she never spoke before, she never stood on her own, and now she does those things to the best of her ability since she's dying. But Right, now she's finally standing on her own as a person, but she's dying. But I'm interested to see what Rose is going to find in England. All right, and we'll be looking forward to that in our next Sandman episode as Lyta finally meets the Furies. But first, join us next week as John Constantine spills some royal blood. Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, why don't you check out our website at vertiguise.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. You can reach me on Twitter, at Vertiguise. And you can reach me at BlankCastSean. You can reach us on Facebook, facebook.com slash And you can reach us by email, vertiguise at gmail.com. Whether it's a question, or a comment, or a bit of advice for what you'd like to see in the future of Vertiguise, we'd be happy to hear from you. And speaking of comments, if you could leave us a positive rating or review on the Apple Podcast app or whatever service you use, we'd really appreciate it. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. You might have to edit some of this out, but it is interesting for me to know. God damn it, now I have to edit this week. Yeah. That doesn't happen every week. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah.